Good evening, everybody. All right, if you want to find your places, we will uh, go ahead and get started. All right, if you got your Bibles tonight and you want to follow along, we're going to be in one verse, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans 12, 1, just one verse, and the title of our lesson tonight is True Worship. True Worship. Um, let's read our verse. Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual uh, worship. Now, as I said last week, tonight, as, as most of you know, in, in case you're visiting, we are going all the way through the book of Romans. So we started in Romans chapter 1, and we've gone through 11 uh, chapters, and tonight we come to chapter 12. And as you get to chapter 12, you make a, a big turn in the book of Romans. Uh, for 11 chapters, we have been dealing with some of the uh, deepest theology, and theology just means the study of God, uh, that you find. There's a reason that, that Romans is called the greatest letter uh, ever written. So for 11 chapters, Paul's been telling us about who God is and what God has done for us and who we are in Christ. Just these incredible, incredible truths. But in chapter 12, that changes, and now we begin to deal with some very practical doctrines, some very practical teaching about how to live the, uh, the, the Christian life. Now, that should not surprise us that Paul has done this, because anytime you study theology and you study it rightly, in other words, you, you understand what it means and you believe it, that should always lead to a life application or life experience. Or let me put it another way. If you and I really understand God's Word and we really believe God's Word, then it is absolutely inevitable that that will produce a lifestyle complementary to your beliefs, right? I've seen people my whole life say, oh, I believe in Jesus, I believe the Bible, uh, I believe all those things, but yet they go out on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and they live a lifestyle that doesn't match the Bible. So when they say they believe the Bible, that's a lie. They don't really believe it. They may not even really understand it. So, but if we, you and I understand the Bible and we believe the Bible, it has to produce a lifestyle that matches up with what we say that we believe. Now, anytime I talk about this connection between the Word and lifestyle, or the Word and our actions and behavior, I can't help but think of Jesus telling the parable of the sower. And I, it's a very well-known parable. I'm sure most of you know this. But Jesus in Matthew 13 tells this parable. And he says this. He says, a sower went out to sow. Now, in those days, they didn't have tractors. They didn't have seed spreaders. The way they, they sowed their seed was they had a basket or they had a bag. And they would fill it up with seed. And they would walk along and they'd reach in. And they would pick up a handful of seed. And they would broadcast that that seed, you know, just kind of scatter it, and sometimes the wind would take it, and you, you couldn't be very exact with where that seed was going to fall. And Jesus said it can fall in four different places. It says, the first thing he did, he said, some of it falls along the path. Now, in those days, they, had, they were very agrarian society. They had fields everywhere, 
And, of course, everybody had to walk. So what they would do is they would have paths that cut through their fields. So everybody, instead of having to walk through your wheat or whatever crop you're growing, they would walk along these paths. And these paths would get beaten down and, and rock hard. And Jesus said sometimes seed would fall along the, the path. And he said other times it'll fall on rocky ground. You know, in Israel or Palestine, uh, it's a very rocky place. And uh, sometimes you would look at some dirt, and it looks like good soil, but it only goes down about an inch. And underneath that is bedrock. And sometimes Jesus said the seed would fall on that. And then other times it would fall into an area where it looks like good ground. But in there, in that ground is, is thorns and other weeds and stuff getting ready to, to grow up alongside whatever seed you're broadcasting. And then he also said there are some that fall on good ground. This is fallow ground, a ground that's been turned over. It's deep. There's no weeds, no thorns. And he says that's good ground. Now, when he tells his parable, he ends up going privately with his disciples, and his disciples ask him, they said, Lord, tell us what that means. Tell us what this parable means. And this is Jesus' explanation, Matthew 13, 18 to 23. He says this, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not, listen, does not understand it. Now, he's not talking about a mind understanding. He's talking about a heart understanding. Listen, I, people can come in here on Sunday and I can explain the gospel that they're a sinner, that Jesus Christ came to this earth, died on a cross for their sins, raised on the third day, ascended into heaven. Does anybody have any trouble understanding any of those words? No, but you have trouble believing it in your heart. That's what he's talking about. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, they don't really understand it. They don't put the right value on it. It says the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And that is what is sown along the path. The same way the birds come and eat the seeds off the path, he says the enemy comes and just steals it right away because people don't see the value. They don't understand it. He goes on, for what was sown on rocky ground? This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately falls away. Listen, I've seen this over and over. Somebody comes into church, they hear the, the word of God preached, and they say, oh, this is it. This, this, is, this Jesus is the answer. He's going to put my marriage back together. He's going to get me out of debt. He's going to solve all my problems. But they're not born again. They're not regenerated. They're not a true child of God. They, 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 they understand it up here. They see Jesus as a Santa Claus, and they receive it with joy. But after just a little while, they're gone, and you don't ever see them anymore because it wasn't real on the inside. In the same way, he says this, As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Uh, a couple years back, I was working with a couple that I was talking to and, and got them coming to church. And, and I, I really felt like God was drawing them. They were talking to me about Christ. They were th thinking about being baptized in different things. And, and, uh, but as time went on, I noticed that the cares of the world began to take more value, more precedence than the kingdom of God. And eventually they just went away. And I, and I believe they experienced some level of the goodness of God, but they were never born again. They never really came to be a child of the king. And so everything else became more important and eventually they are gone. But listen, Jesus said this, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, not just up here, but deep down in here. 
And he says this, He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. This is the good fruit of the Christian life. When you and I hear the Word of God, understand the Word of God in our heart, believe the Word of God, it is inevitable, inevitable, that you will produce good Christian fruit in your life. Now, this is exactly what Paul is doing in chapter 12. It's exactly what he's doing. He's, he's going to ask of us, bear its time. Do you believe what I've taught you in, in, in chapters 1 through 11? Do you believe all the things I've told you about who God is and what he's done for you? Yes? Then go bear good fruit. It's time. It's time to put it into action. It's time to, to see what, uh, what you can do. And he, in these chapters, at the end of uh, Romans, he's going to ask us, not only ask us to do it, he's going to tell us how to do it. So in that verse, I want to point out four things tonight. And uh, four things, and then we're going to end up with a key to, to living a victorious Christian life. Four things. The first one is a simple one, and that is the word therefore. Now, you and I understand that word, right? Therefore is a connecting word. If I said to you something like, hey, I've, I've given you the solution, now go fix the problem. Or therefore, go fix the problem, right? I've said one thing, therefore... Go do this. Well, that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He comes to the end of chapter 11, and he says, Therefore, based on what I've been teaching you in all these 11 chapters, these incredible truths about this God that you serve, based on that, go out and bear fruit. You see, the call to live the Christian life. We're going to talk in a moment about living a holy lifestyle a holy lifestyle, not just doing holy things or righteous things, but actually living a lifestyle of holiness. That doesn't just come out of nowhere. You just don't do that. God didn't just wait, wave a magic wand over you and all of a sudden you're this different person. It's got to be based on something. And what it is based on is the Word of God. It is based on these deep doctrines and truths that not only has Paul taught us in Romans, but he teaches us in other letters. Jesus teaches us in the, in the Gospels. It's got to be based on something. So that's what you and I have to understand. Therefore, build your life, sink your roots deep into the truths of the Bible, and it is inevitable, inevitable, that you will bear good Christian fruit. The second thing about this verse that I want to point out he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. Now, that's an interesting thing to me. Because Paul could have said, I appeal to you based on the grace of God. Or I appeal to you based on the goodness of God. Or I appeal to you based on the kindness of God. He could have done all of those things, but he didn't. He said, I appeal to you based on the mercy of God. Now, the question is, why? Why did he choose that attribute of God to appeal to us based on that attribute? Well, I think there are two reasons. First of all, that phrase, the mercies of God, pretty much sums up everything that God has done for us in chapters 1 through 11. God has been merciful to us. He foreknew us, Paul said. He predestined us, Paul said. He chose us. He died for us. And even today, he is interceding or praying for us. That's mercy. But mercy means, folks, you don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You are his enemies. You're in rebellion against him. You don't care anything about him. Uh, you flaunt his ways and his word, and yet he still comes in and he shows mercy. He does all those things even though we don't deserve it. And here's the thing that I want you to remind you of. 
Luke 6.36 says this, You be merciful even as your Father was merciful to you. You know, there's not a lot of God's traits that we can emulate. I can't emulate His power. I can't emulate His omniscience. I can't emulate a lot of things about God, but I can emulate His mercy. I can show mercy to others in the same way that God has shown mercy to me. You see, true Christians are a mercy-shaped people. We are, we are built by mercy. We are formed by, by mercy. We have everything we have because of the mercy of God. Therefore, that's how we should live. Listen, as we push forward into chapter 12, we're going to see all these commands of Paul. And for example, he's going to say, bless those who persecute you. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil. Verse 18, be at peace with all men. Verse 21, do not overcome uh, by evil, but overcome evil with good. These are all situations where someone is treating you badly. When someone is doing evil against you, that, that's doing you wrong. And Paul says, turn around and show them mercy. Show them mercy. Everything he's going to ask us to do is all about mercy. God had mercy on us when we treated him the wrong way, when we sinned against him. Now you turn around and do the same to others within your sphere of influence because that is mercy. So this is what Paul is saying. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, on what basis? By the mercies of God. God has been merciful to you. Now you go live the practical Christian life and you show mercy in the same way. Third thing, and this is the important one for here tonight. He says this, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, here's one thing we got to be very, very careful of. And a lot of people are making this mistake today. I don't want you to walk out of here and think that the Christian life is first and foremost about being merciful to other people. Okay, that's part of it. But first and foremost, the Christian life is being worshipful toward God. You have to have those two things in the right order. You see, there are churches all across America today that, are, that, are, that are, are going out of their way to be merciful. The problem is they're taking God out of the equation. Are you with me? They're being merciful. Everybody's included. We love everybody, right? And that's great. We should show mercy to everyone. But if you leave God out, all you're left with is a social agenda. You're left with a social gospel. Now, we cannot do that. We can never let the Christian life drift into just a social agenda. The fact is we're not doing anyone any good if we leave Jesus out of the equation. If we leave Jesus out of the mercy that we're showing, we're, that's not merciful at all. In fact, making people feel comfortable on their way to hell is not mercy. Making someone feel good about themselves, about who they are, while they're on their way to eternal punishment. How is that, how is that mercy? It's not mercy at all. True mercy always has to put God first. Always has to put God first. So it is essential, absolutely essential, as we move forward into these chapters and we begin to talk about living the practical Christian life, that we understand that we must be worshipful before we are ever merciful. We need to have this right before we can have this right. We have to keep that in order. So here's what I want to do tonight with a little bit of time. Paul says, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, not a dead one. That's important. 
what we're going to do is what he's talking about here is a lifestyle of worship. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, I want to look at some of the words that he uses. Now, look, let's read it again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Paul is describing what he means right there by spiritual worship, which is to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Okay? So there's that phrase. But what does that mean? What, do we, what does he mean by present your bodies as a living sacrifice? Well, the first thing we, we... What we need to do here is we need to understand Scripture, right? Because when we understand it, we believe it, and it turns into life application. So let's make sure we understand it. First thing we need to understand is this is language of Old Testament worship. When, when Paul starts using phrases like sacrifice, he's harking back to the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, you know they would come to the temple... And they would bring sacrifices. They would bring sheep or they would bring bulls or they would bring uh, pigeons, depending on how much money you had or what type of sin you were trying to atone for. But they would bring these animals and they would sacrifice them on the altar to God. And, and of course, the, the whole point of that, the whole idea around that was that sin demands punishment or sin demands a covering, an atonement. And what that animal represented was God's willingness to accept a substitute until the perfect sacrifice came along. And that went on for years and years and generations and generations. But Hebrews 10.4 says this, It is impossible for the blood of, of bulls and goats to take away sins. The, sin, the, the blood of animals cannot cover our sin. You see, those sacrifices were a shadow. They were a pointer. They were a foreshadowing of the perfect sacrifice which was to come, of course, which is Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 12 says this, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. I always like that. Sitting down means what? It's done. It's over. No more work to do. You sit down. There are no more sacrifices. So here's what you and I need to understand. Christ ended the Old Testament sacrifices. In fact, in 70 AD, the Romans come in. They destroy Jerusalem. The, the, the temple is burnt down, the, the brazen altar is destroyed, the Holy of Holies is destroyed, all the temple records for who was the high priest were all destroyed. He completely wiped out the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's over. It's done. We, we couldn't offer animal sacrifices if we wanted to because there's no way to do it. Why did he do that? Because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. All you and I have to do now is trust in him. That's it. There is no way that we can add to it. Now, why do I say this? Because I want you to know that when Paul says, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, it has absolutely nothing to do with your sin. Does everybody get that? Now, it has nothing to do at all with sin. This is something completely different that he's talking about. Now, I want to show you this because I want to look at some of the words he uses in order to make sure that we understand his command. Because I need to understand this in order to believe it so that I can turn it into a life application. The first thing I want to look at is he says this, present your bodies. Present your bodies. Now, I'm going to tell you what he means by that, but I also want to tell you what he doesn't mean. Because sometimes we can kind of miss the point, all right? The first thing, he's not, when he says present your bodies... 
he doesn't say present your bodies and your mind and your spirit. But he doesn't, he's not leaving them out. That's not the point here. In fact, in verse 2, we'll look at that next week, he says, uh, uh, be transformed in the renewal of your mind. So the mind is part of this. The heart is part of it. The spirit is part of it. What, what Paul is doing here is he wants us to understand. Now listen to me because this is so important. He wants us to understand the body matters. Living, when you're living a holy lifestyle, the body matters. Secondly, don't think this has anything to do with how your body looks, okay? Offering our bodies to God has nothing to do with how our body looks. It has to do with how we use our body, how our body acts, okay? In, in fact, listen, the body is given to us to make visible the beauty of Christ, okay? We don't do that through our looks. We don't do that through how we dress. We do it through how the body acts. He's talking about our behavior. Just as a side note, by the way, Jesus Christ, at the hour where he was most beautiful, was actually the hour he was most repulsive to look at. Isaiah 53 said he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected. He was beaten to a pulp. He was literally repulsive to look at but that was the most beautiful he's ever been when he hung on that cross for our sins. So it's not about the outside. It's not about the way it looks. It's about our actions and behavior. You see, the beauty of Christ when he hung on the cross was found in his love and in his kindness and in his grace and in his mercy. It's not the beauty of looks. And you and I have to do... That's the same thing we're called to do. We're called to show the beauty of Christ, not in, not in the way we dress or the way we look, but in the acts that we perform and the grace that we extend to others and the mercy and the gentleness and the kindness and all of those things that we extend to others around us. So present your bodies. Your body matters. Now, he says this, do it as a living sacrifice. Now, sometimes Christians are called to give their life for Jesus, to actually die for him as a martyr, but that is absolutely not what Paul is referring to here. He says, present your body as a living sacrifice. What he's talking about here is a lifestyle. It's an act of worship in the way that you live. In other words, you and I should live our lives in such a way that everything we do shows the world that Christ is more precious to us than any, anything in the world. In our marriage, we should, we should conduct our marriage so that Christ is glorified. We should be parents so that Christ is glorified. We should spend our money so that Christ is glorified. Every act that we do should, should show that. So present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a lifestyle of worship. And then he tells us what he expects of us. Holy and acceptable to God. Now, what makes a body holy? Anybody here know what the word holy means? It means set apart. What makes your body set apart for use of God? Paul told us back in Romans 6, 13, he said this, Do not present your members. Your members are your hands, your feet, your ears, your eyes, your nose, your, your mouth, your tongue, how you speak. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. By the way, this is a choice. Paul says you got a choice. You can take your eyes and your tongue and your ears and your eyes and your, and, and your hands and your feet, and you can present them to sin and say, go use them, go, go, you know, go have at it. Or, he says, you can present yourselves to God as those who have been bought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. 
We all have a choice how to use our body. Do we give it to sin or do we give it to God and say use it for righteousness? That's what holiness is. That's what a lifestyle of holiness is when we're giving our body to God and say use it this way. So give your members, your eyes, your, your, your tongue, your hands and feet, give them to righteousness and not sin. That's what makes a body holy. It's holy because of what it does. Now, he adds this, holy and acceptable to God. Every time I read that, I often wonder, why did he add that? Because obviously, if you're living a holy life, you're acceptable to God, right? Why did you have to add that, Paul? I think the reason he adds it, because he make, he, this, this literally makes God explicit. You see, there are people out there, if I, if I went, in fact, I, I didn't do this, but I bet if I went on my computer and I googled holy man, I'd see a picture of maybe of a Buddhist. Or I'd see a picture of a, of a, of a Catholic priest or, or somebody living out in a monastery or some, somebody that's kind of withdrew from the world. Are you with me? See, there's a lifestyle out there that some would call holy that has nothing to do with God. You see the difference, right? He said this is, it's, it's a holy lifestyle. It's a lifestyle that's set apart from the world, but it's acceptable to God. And I think that makes God explicit. It doesn't leave room for somebody to move out into, to, into the wilderness and just live on the top of the hill just so, you know, you don't get near sin or nothing can touch. That's not what he's talking about. It, it, this has to be a lifestyle that's holy to God. Again, these two words together, holy and acceptable to God, reminds us the reason holiness matters is it's all to do with God. It's all an act of worship, and worship always centers around God. Now, I mentioned this word worship. Paul says all of this is your spiritual worship. Now, this is so key for us to understand, okay? My guess is if I went around and I just, I just cornered up 10 of y'all and I said, what do you think worship is? Most of y'all would say, that's worship. You come in Sunday, you sing songs, you, you raise your hands and, and you, you, you glorify God. That is worship. But Paul wants us to understand it goes way beyond that. It goes way beyond singing some songs and saying some things. It goes way beyond that. It is a lifestyle. It involves the way we use our body. It, it involves the way we act and the way we behave. I'm sorry, I don't know any other way to say this. If you come in on a Sunday morning, you sing the songs and raise your hand, and then you go back out there and live a worldly lifestyle, you are not worshiping God. That's not worship. It's got nothing to do with worship. You, you don't even know God. You, you, there's something badly, badly wrong. Worship of God is, listen, there's nothing wrong. I've raised my hands and, and, and tears should flow from our eyes when we understand what God, we should worship him from the heart. But if we really mean it, we walk out those doors and we live a holy lifestyle. That's what Paul wants us to see. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. See, this is so important for Paul as we come to chapter, I mean, think about this. This is chapter 12, verse 1. He's fixing to dive into all these different things. He's going to tell us how to love our neighbor. He's going to tell us how to live by godly principles. He's going to talk about submission to government. He's got all these very practical things. But the first thing he says is he, he wants us to understand what worship is. 
that worship, all these things he's asking you to do isn't so you can check off a list, isn't so that you can earn salvation. It's a lifestyle of worship. You see, that is worship, and that's what he wants us to see. One more quick thing, and then we'll, we'll close with what I call the key to Christian living. And this is a very simple thing. I want you to notice that Paul says at the very beginning, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. Okay? Now, this is interesting that Paul does not say, I command you. He doesn't say that. He could have said it. He's an apostle. He's been given the authority under God to, to, to tell us what to do, but he doesn't do that. He says, I appeal to you. Now, why would he do that? Well, it turns out that in, in the book of Philemon, Paul writes and he says this, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to what? Appeal to you. See, he's coming. He could come, as, he could come with, the, with the right arm of authority and say, I command you to live, but he doesn't. He says, I ask you, brothers and sisters. I ask you, I appeal to you. Now, why would he do that? I think the reason he does, and, and by the way, notice he calls them brothers and sisters. He's, he's not using his apostolic authority. He's putting himself at the same level of them. He's looking at them as brothers and sisters, and he's saying, I'm, I'm asking you to do this. Why? I think the reason he does, because he's modeling for us the very thing he's going to ask us to do. He's not coming with authority. He's not coming with a, with a heavy hand. He's coming and he's modeling gentleness. And he's modeling kindness. And he's modeling love. And he's modeling mercy. The same things that he's going to go ask us to do, he's doing at the very first verse of this, uh, of this chapter. Now, I want to close with this. I, I want you to notice, one, one of the things that makes this so fascinating to me in this first verse is we have just spent 11 chapters. And for those of you that have been with us the whole time, uh, we are almost a year in. I don't know if this is the 58th, le- I don't know. I don't know. It's Actually, we're more than a year. I forgot about that. So we've been in this more than a year. Uh, started, August was a year ago, teaching through this book. 11 chapters, right? And when Paul gets to chapter 12, verse 1, and he gets ready to talk about Christian living and, and spiritual worship, Paul doesn't say, hey guys, here's what you need to get. Paul says, here's what you need to give. Okay? Now, why do I bring this up? Because that is so far away from what many people teach uh, is the key to spiritual living in Christianity today. See, there's so many people out there saying that if you want to live a victorious Christian life, if you want to get victory over sin, if you want to get victory in your marriage, if you want to get victory in your family and live this fulfilled Christian life... You need to get more of God. You got to get more of God. See that, that I mean this is a idea very prevalent in that that you got to go you got to get the anointing or you got to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit or you got to get fresh revelation. You got to get something. Just get more and more and more and more. And then you can live the successful Christian life. And there are literally people that will flock to churches if they hear there's a move of God. Or they'll flock to this conference if they can, just to get more of God so they can be victorious. And there's a real problem with that, folks, is all of those people that are chasing experiences, they're not living the victorious Christian life. And I tell you how I know, because I was one of those people. If I could just get this, if I could just, 
get that. If I could just get this, I, can, I, I, can, I, can, I won't struggle with sin anymore. Or I'll be able to just do the most simplest acts of obedience. But what happens, you go get the experience, and then when you come off the experience, you're the same person you were before. Nothing's changed. And what happens with a lot of people, and I can, I can name them, I know them, they're frustrated and they're defeated and they're not even in church anymore because they spent years chasing experiences and it, and it didn't extrapolate itself to the victorious Christian life. Now let me say this before I move on. I have no problem with spiritual experiences. I have no problem with getting more of God. The question is, how to, what's the right way to do it? Are you with me? I, I want to experience God. I want to know more of God. I, I want to have more power. I want all those things. The question is, what's the right way to go about it? Well, it turns out it's not getting more, it's giving more. It's not about getting, getting, getting. It's about giving, giving, giving. Giving all you have. Isn't that what the Bible teaches us? Matthew 10, 39. It's the paradox that, that Pastor Henry preached on uh, his sermons uh, uh, several weeks ago. It's the paradox of the Christian life. You want to find your life? You want to find power and, a, and, and victory over sin? Lose it. Lose your life. Get, 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 give up. Give all that stuff away. It's, it's the paradox of the Christian life. See, this is not some arbitrary thought that Paul just pulls out of the air. Hey, I just think I'll start chapter 12 with this, this crazy thought about, uh, you know, giving yourself as a living sacrifice. I mean, think about it this way. What is the conclusion of 11 chapters of some of the greatest theology you'll ever read? 11 chapters of talking about how God, before the foundation of the world, had it all planned out. How that God sent His Son to die on a cross for our sin. How, how that God is just, He's unbelievable. This God that we serve. You do 11 chapters of that and you turn the page. What do you expect Paul to say? Give, give yourself to Him in the supreme act of worship. Lay your life on the altar. Give yourself to him. That's exactly what we would expect. Not you got to go get more. He's done done it all. Ephesians says we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's already taken care of all of it. It's such a paradox that if we'll just give, if we'll just give to others, if we'll just give of ourselves, if we'll just offer our members as instruments of righteousness and not as instruments of sin, it is amazing what will happen in your life. It'll, it's amazing the victories that you will find. Is it easy? No. Scooter was telling me a while ago, one guy said his problem with this scripture is he climbs up on the altar and then he climbs off. Right? You're, you're a living sacrifice, so you get up and then it gets uncomfortable, so you climb back down. Is it easy? No, absolutely. But is it necessary? Oh, yeah. It's absolutely necessary. You want to tru truly, truly know God, then give him all that you have. You want to truly worship God, give Him all that you are. You want to glorify Him, you want to, you want to serve Him, you want, to, you want victory in your life over sin, you want victory in your marriage, both of you, give yourself to Him. Give everything, don't hold back. See, the problem is most Christians can never come fully to that place. Most of us just can't quite go all the way. We kind of hold back a little bit. We flirt with the world. We flirt with our flesh. We flirt with the things that we want. We, we buy into the world's entertainment, the world's definition of what fun is and what joy is. And we don't ever quite give it all. 
And because of that, we never quite know what God has in store for us. We never really come to that place of just complete and total commitment. And, and as, as such, I think we've, many of us fail, and I put myself there, we fail to reach the blessings that God has for us in this life. The question tonight as we close, I think for each one of us, is the, the, the message is simple, isn't it? Present yourself, present your members as instruments of righteousness, not to sin. Live a holy lifestyle, not for an hour, not for a week, but year after year after year. Commit yourself, give of yourself to God and see what He can do. The question is for each one of us isn't can I do it, because you can. Paul wouldn't ask us to do it if we couldn't. The question is, are we really willing? Are we really willing? We're going to close tonight. I'm just going to uh, real quickly, if anybody would like to come to the altar and spend a few minutes in prayer, um, maybe something about this lesson or has, has kind of spoke to you or convicted you that you need to give more of yourself to God, that you need to let go of some things. Um, there's, there, listen, Remember what, uh, the, the seed gets spread, right? The seed gets spread. Sometimes if we don't act on it, we walk out the door and the enemy steals it and takes it away. Sometimes we need to confirm it right then. So I'm going to pray, just say a few words of prayer. If you'd like to come and, and spend a, just a few minutes here uh, as we close, feel free to do that. And then I think, Chuck, you're going to come and, and make an announcement. So if you want to come, feel free. Father, Lord, we love you. We honor you. And we thank you for your word. What an incredible, incredible book you have given us in this book of Romans. And God, we have spent 11 chapters studying about you. We've spent 11 chapters in who you are and, 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 and what you've done for us and who we are in you. But God, now it's time to turn the page. And now it's time to just not take it from being words on a page to being words written on our heart. It's time to take it from just theology and doctrine and teaching to actual practical living. And God, we need help. We need help doing that. Now, next week, Lord, I, I've already looked ahead. I know what's coming. I know next week you're going to tell us how to start that process. But tonight, Lord, even if we don't know how, we need to say yes to you. We need to say, I'm willing. We need to make that commitment and just say, Lord, show me how. And I'll do it. I want more of you, but I realize the way I'm going to get that is by giving everything I am. Giving everything I have. God, help us to be willing. The time is so short. Even if, I don't know when you're coming back. I've said this over and over, but life is but a vapor. It's just a puff of smoke. We're here for just such a short, short time. God, we only have a few years on this earth. God, help us make the most of it. Help us make the most of it. And God, Holy Spirit, you take these pitiful English words that I speak and do something in hearts here tonight. That we walk out of here not satisfied, not satisfied to be 70% committed or 80% committed or 99% committed. But God, we're going to go all the way. We're going to give it all to you. And we're going to sit back and watch what you can do. We love you, we thank you, we praise you, and we give all the glory to your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.